Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Uh, Father James Bradley is here with us this evening to offer our opening prayer. Please stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, meek and humble of heart, you offer to those who follow you a yoke that is good to bear and a burden that is light. Accept, we beg you, our prayer and work of this day, that as we worship you here at your altar on earth, so we may come to worship you at your altar in heaven, where with the saints and angels we may praise you forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Mary, our hope, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, Son and of the Holy, Holy Ghost. Ghost. Amen. Please welcome back Father Randy Sly. Well, good evening. It is what a joy to have my brother priest in the personal ordinariate, Father James Bradley, here tonight. And every time I hear him pray or talk, I feel like a hick. <laughs> when, I, when I offer divine worship on Sunday evenings, I especially wish that I could channel his wonderful British accent when I say, Almighty God unto whom all hearts, I feel like I'm saying, Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open. Because, you know, Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open, who desires no. I love it. I wish, you know, anyway. But Father, it's good to have you with us tonight. Uh, tonight we are going to be talking about the Freemasonry, the Masonic Lodge. And it was, I guess... Deacon, about, what, three or four months ago, we chatted about this particular topic, bringing this to... Your memory is very short, Father. We spoke about this about a year and a half ago. Well, I was... Okay. <laughs> for, for my mind, that was like a few months ago. Yeah, yeah everything kind of compresses. No, anyway, where I was going with that is that, that once the deacon, a year and a half ago, talked to me about this, I was sharing it one night uh, just before divine worship. And uh, the, uh, the gentleman who assists me in divine worship as the altar server, acolyte, MC, jack of all trades, doing everything, Mark Arbeen, uh, who also is a convert from the Episcopal Church, said to me, well, you know, I used to be a Mason. And so I asked him about building my wall, you know, for my garden. And he said, no, no, no. The, no, the kind you were talking about with Deacon Sabatino. So I said, oh. So anyway, when this uh, project began to take root, I uh, called my dear friend to have him come and share with us tonight because I am basically going to be a lecturer. But what you have here is someone who has actually gone through it uh, and understands Freemasonry from the inside, as most of you may know, especially in the Protestant world, but particularly among the Episcopalians. There's a lot of Masonic activity. And uh, so Mark is uh, basically 30, 32nd degree plus. There's a little more that you did, but not quite 33rd degree. Uh, he didn't quite make that degree yet. Not yet. Never going to do it. Never going to do it. Because he converted into the, came into the Catholic Church. Anyway, um, 
But we do want to have a chance not only for you to hear about Freemasonry, but also Mark brought some of his artifacts from his prior life over there. And you can kind of look, if you've heard about the Masonic apron, you can see them over there. If you've heard about some of the other things that are a part of Freemasonry, there you have it over there. Uh, so anyway, as we get started, I want to start again with the same scripture I used last week. Because we all know that this is where we go to find the truth. And how many of you, I asked this the last week, I'm going to do it again. How many of you brought your Bibles with you? Deacon, take a look. A lot better than last week. Good, good for you. Good for you. I brought a couple. Yeah, yes, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. Mark. You'll get into that a little later, I'm sure. Um, anyway. When we talk about the kingdom of the cults and when we talk about Scientology, Freemasonry, and next week the Baha'i, we're really talking about beyond the kingdom of the cults because this really is a different thing than, say, Mormonism and other such uh, areas. But Freemasonry in particular is one that I think tonight uh, will kind of surprise you in a number of ways. For some that may have done some study of Freemasonry, you may be a little, may I say, let down because things are not as some people portray them to be. Nonetheless, I think that we will come away with a great understanding of why the Catholic Church has taken the strong position which we should take and must take concerning groups like Freemasons. So, um, with that, I want to begin again with St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1. And um, in verse 11, this is what... Well, now I'm, I'm take that back. I'm going to start in verse 6. Verse 6 of chapter 1 of Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one which you have received, let him be accursed. And I think it's important for us to remember that it is essential for us in all ways, at all times, everywhere, to defend the Catholic faith. And where we find common ground, that's wonderful when we look at other religions and, and other ways of looking at life. Where we find common ground, that is wonderful. But we cannot embrace anything that would water down or dissuade people from accepting the gospel of Jesus. That is critical. Well, let's do a little talk about what is Freemasonry. Now, the first thing is it's a fraternal organization of men. And, in fact, the Grand Lodge of the Ancient, Free, and Accepted Masons of Virginia, this is the Virginia Grand Lodge, would say this, Freemasonry is the world's largest and best-known fraternal organization, mythically descended from the builders of King Solomon's Temple in Jerusalem. It is believed to have developed from the craft guilds of European stonemasons who built castles and cathedrals during the Middle Ages. Temporary buildings called lodges were built next to cathedrals and masons we used them to meet, to receive their pay, to plan their work, and to train new apprentices and to socialize. 
So this is really the beginning in terms of how they would explain to the general population who they are as a group, that they are a fraternal organization. They are very quick to say that even though they have charity work that they do, that they are not primarily a service organization, they are a fraternal organization. And the other thing is that brotherhood is the primary teaching of masonry. Again, the uh, Masonic uh, Service uh, Association of North America says the fraternity of free and accepted Masons has brothers from every ethnic group and every continent of the world. Brotherhood is the primary teaching of Masonry, that each person must be judged as an individual on his own merits, and such factors as race, national origin, religious creed, social status, wealth are incidental. So what we have here is an organization that has determined publicly that what they want to do is make sure that there is a brotherhood, a relationship that is established among individuals. Now, internationally right now, well, this is probably a few years dated, there are three million Masons worldwide, and it is in decline. As an example of that in the United States, currently they are listing approximately 1,300,000 members of Masonic lodges, but in 1951 there were 4 million Masons. So we are definitely seeing a major shift in terms of the popularity of the Masonic Lodge. The basic unit is the lodge, and then upon the, uh, the establishing of lodges, they also have grand lodges, which is their regional head, and there's 51 in the United States, one for each state in the Union, and one for the District of Columbia. There is no national headquarters, or I mean, excuse me, international headquarters, or even national headquarters for the Freemasons. This is an important thing to remember. There is not one single head of the whole group, and that really will make a difference in terms of how we share with you some of the other things that are going on. This is basically how a lodge is organized. There is the titles which have come from the Middle Ages and are still used today, and here's the equivalent of what those people are. You have the worshipful master, senior and junior warden, treasurer, secretary, the marshal, which is the master of ceremonies, the deacon, the steward, the tiler, and the chaplain. This would be for Scottish Rite, correct, Mark? Both? For both, okay. So these are the... Uh, the, Blue the Blue Lodge. This is called the Blue Lodge, okay. There is also... Uh, for women, the Order of the Eastern Star, which is the fraternal, uh, this, you know, it's kind of the, the women's side of the Masonic Lodge, although it is a Masonic-related group, but not a Masonic group. Uh, the other is the Order of the Amaranth and the White Shrine of Jerusalem. Uh, Eastern Star was begun in 1855, Amaranth in 1873, and the White Shrine of Jerusalem in 1894. Now, you may remember some of these groups. The Order of Demolay. Yeah, that is the young man's group founded in 1919 in Kansas City, Missouri. And it's for young men 12 to 25 years of age. There's also a, a girls' group called Job's Daughters, which began in 1920 in Omaha, Nebraska, again, ages 12 to 20. And to belong to Job's daughters, you must be related to a Mason. There is another group, Rainbow Girls. 
Rainbow Girls, again, is, uh, was founded in 1922, girls ages 11 through 20. You don't have to be related to a Mason to be involved in Rainbow Girls. There's another group that you may remember, the Shriners. The Shriners um, are a, an appended organization to the Masons. And uh, they are technically the ancient Arabic order of the nobles of the mystic shrine, which is basically an anagram for a Mason. And it is not a Masonic organization, but you have to be a Mason to join. Basically, it's a completely different structure. This is called the playground of, of, uh, Masonic, of the Masonic world. Because, you know, they have their toy cars, their bands, all kinds of fun things. And they're involved in the, their large gathering in a state is called a temple. Then they have units or clubs for different interest groups. They do a lot of fundraising. As you know, they have the Shriners Hospitals. Uh, the Shrine Circus is probably the biggest moneymaker every year. But it is an opportunity for a grown man to ride in a little tiny funny car, mini motorcycles, big motorcycles, lawn chair uh, drills, all kinds of things going on. Clowns, there's big clown clubs or uh, clown units. So that basically is uh, what we have in terms of the Freemasons organization. Now what are some of the concerns, the concerns that we have when this group the first one is Freemasonry as a religion. Now, Freemasons basically say, again, this comes from the Masonic Information Center, we are religious but not a religion. And they say Freemasonry is not a religion, nor is it a substitute for religion. It requires of its members a belief in God as a part of the obligation of every responsible adult. An atheist cannot be a Mason. But what's interesting is what it goes on to say. Um, Masonic ceremonies include prayers, both traditional and extempore, to reaffirm every individual's dependence on God and to seek divine guidance. Freemasonry is open to men of any faith, but religion may not be discussed at the meeting. So they will practice it, but they don't talk about it. But basically, if you look at what the definition that is used, and I'm just using one, the uh, freedictionary.com, that, that religion is the belief and reverence for a supernatural power or powers regarding a creator or governor of the universe. And so what we see here is that, that we have a group that says they're not religious. I mean, they are religious, but not a religion. But they basically have a lot of the earmarks. They also encourage what they call a Masonic rule of life as a standard uh, that they want to hold forward for all of the people that are there. It's a belief in reverence for the supernatural power. Also, uh, it is a set of beliefs or values or practices uh, of teachings of a spiritual leader or a cause or a principle or activity pursued with zeal or conscientious devotion. So in many ways, there is, a, there is a zeal, there is a devotion that has a religious aspect that does have us concerned about them saying we are not a religion, but at the same time, there are great systems of religious practice that are in place. 
it does qualify at at least one of the points. And what you could say probably more than anything else is that it is syncretistic. In other words, it is bringing in practices and ideas from a variety of religions into one place and trying to build a compound worldview. And uh, again, with the Masonic rule of life, again, it's setting up a rule of life that, that may be contradictory. Well, not maybe, but it's contradictory to perhaps what we are looking at in terms of our Catholic worldview. Now, the other one is Freemasonry is a secret society. And um, this is where uh, I, I just want to help you through this because this was a bit of a surprise to me, too, is that, you know, of course, their declaration is the greatest secret is that there are no secrets in Freemasonry. There are passwords, handshakes, and degree information, but listen to what a former Mason who is now a Christian says. As former Masons, we can assure you that you are not missing much when it comes to what is really considered Masonic secrets. Because the only real secrets in Freemasonry are the modes of recognition. So in some ways, we have the sense of a secret society, and so we think that there are these secrets that are going around. Now, we're going to show you in a little bit that there are places where things can happen because of this, universal, uh, this universalist worldview that they hold. But in other words, in terms of Freemasonry as a whole, it's not the secrets that are at issue. What's at issue is the keeping of secrets. The fact that there is an oath that will keep things secret from others that are a part of their life. Let me give you uh, a couple of, of uh, quotes here. One is from Father Peter Rosen, who wrote The Catholic Church and Secret Societies. He says, A society with secrets having a ritual demanding an oath of allegiance and secrecy prescribing ceremonies of a religious character such as the youths of the Bible, either by extracts therefrom or by its being placed on an altar within a lodge room by the use of prayers or hymns or religious signs and symbols, spiritual uh, or special funeral practices, etc. So that is the concern, is that it's, it's the idea of having these secrets being such a sacred thing. Archbishop Katzer, uh, Katzer of Wil Milwaukee, back in 1895, wrote a pastoral to his diocese who really, I think, extracted some interesting information. He said that part of the problem is that they can unite their members for the purpose of conspiring against state and church. And Mark will probably address that in a little while. The second is the demand for the observance of secrecy to such an extent that it must be maintained even before the rightful ecclesiastical authority. In other words, a mason is bound not to reveal secrets even to those that might have, have ecclesiastical authority over them in life that those oaths, oaths are to, be, uh, to remain intact. And to exact an oath from their members or a special promise of blind and absolute obedience. But here's the unique one. To make use of a ritual and ceremonies that constitute them sects. S-E-C-T-S, sects. Now, what Archbishop Katzer is saying here is that if you are a Mason and a Catholic, for example and you wanted to practice a Masonic rule of life, which could incorporate parts of your Catholic faith, but would incorporate other values, you have just become a sect and have departed from the greater body of truth, which is the Catholic Church. 
You have now become sectarian. You have removed yourself from the greater body of the whole of truth and have come down and are practicing a more unique and, and specialized, individualized practice of faith. So you can see why this really has a great deal more problem for people within the Catholic world than within the Protestant world, obviously. So it unites their church for the purpose of conspiring, the observance of secrecy, oath of blind and absolute obedience, and rituals and ceremonies that constitute them a sect. Now, there are also controversies. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but these are things that many of you have probably heard. Places of satanic worship, animal sacrifice. How many have heard that about the Freemasons? Okay. Part of a large global conspiracy. Anybody heard that one? Yeah. With the House of Rockefeller, the House of Rothschild, the Illuminati, and the Council of Foreign Relations. This was, ex was really perpetuated in recent years by movies called National Treasure and National Treasure 2, which really made the Freemasons an integral part of this great global conspiracy. Uh, Mark of Zorro, I think, also got involved in that to some extent. So anyway, that is kind of a, a general um, introduction to the Masons. Is there anything that you want to add, Mark, before we go on? Okay. Okay, we're going to keep going because I'm sure that we're going to run out of time before we run out of material. I've got enough here for about six weeks. Um, well, let's look at Freemasonry in the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has prohibited membership in Freemasonry since early in the 18th century. And the church has condemned Freemasonry and secret societies a total of 53 times since that. And I'm talking about written public condemnation. And also 21 times that they have specifically uh, outlawed uh, people being members of Freemasonry. So since then, 53 times, 20 times specifically. Now, the first public statement by a pope was by Pope Clement XII in 1738 in an encyclical entitled In Eminenti. And here he says, Wherefore we command most strictly and in virtue of holy obedience all the faithful of whatever state, grade, condition, order, dignity, or preeminence, whether clerical or lay, secular, or regular, even those who are entitled to specific and individual mention, that none under any pretext or for any reason shall dare to presume to enter, propagate, or support these aforesaid societies. So Pope Clement was the first one to come out and say, absolutely no, Catholics cannot be members of Freemasonry. And we go on. There was one by Pope Leo XIII, issued on April 20th of 1844, called Humanum Genus. And this was an encyclical, again, specifically on Freemasonry. Uh, let me back up. In that one, he said, uh, their utter ultimate purpose forces itself into view, namely the utter overthrow of that whole religious and political order of the world which the Christian teaching has produced, and the substitution of a new state of things in accordance with our ideas, of which the foundations and laws shall be drawn from mere naturalism. 
And I don't have time to go into all of the details, but Pope Leo went into a great deal of detail in terms of explaining how naturalism is woven in to the fabric of Masonic teaching and the Masonic worldview. The Code of Canon Law in 1917, uh, Canon 2335, reads, people or persons joining associations of the Masonic sect or any others of the same kind which plot against the church and legitimate civil authorities contract ipso facto excommunication simply reserved to the apostolic see. Okay, so in other words, uh, he is saying that um, they automatically, by just joining the organization, are automatically dis uh, excommunicated. Now, after Vatican II, there was a revision of the Code of Canon Law, and I'm a little nervous here because both Father Bradley and Eddie next to him are uh, stu students of Canon Law at Catholic University. So if they start pinching their nose, I know that I have basically stepped over the line in terms of being a simple, simple country priest here. But anyway, Canon 2335 was being superseded because there was um, going to be the rewriting of Canon Law. But after Vatican II, there was kind of this, this prevailing sense of, of a new ecumenism. And in that, there was a question written uh, to the Holy See whether or not there was still going to be this kind of, of uh, strong position toward Freemasonry. So in responding, Cardinal Francis Sepper, who was prefect of the Sacred Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, wrote a, public, a letter, of course, to the church about this. And uh, unfortunately, the letter that he sent out did more damage than it did. It didn't clarify anything. It actually made things kind of worse because he said the Holy See had been seeking out information about Mas Masonic activities against the church and there will be no new law in the matter and all of the canons must be interpreted and uh, that express hope prohibition against Masonic membership by cler clerics, religious, and members of secular institutes is reiterated. But what happened is... That, that many people took the first thing about seeking those that were anti-Masonic to where they were, the bishops were coming out and saying, look, if you're a part of a lodge that's not anti-Masonic, go ahead and stay. If you're anti-Masonic, then you need to come out. And so this, this letter called a great deal, caused a great deal of confusion, <laughs> so he sent out a second letter. Guess what happened? Yeah, if, if it ain't broke... Don't fix it, but if it's broke, don't try to break it again. Anyway, the letter still did not do uh, a good job. And then finally, in 1983, a new can uh, canon came out as a part of the new uh, Code of Canon Law. Uh, canon 1374, which says, A person who joins an association which plots against the church is to be punished with a just penalty. One who promotes or takes office in such an association is to be punished without an interdict or with an interdict, excuse me, with an interdict. What's missing from that canon? And what else is missing besides excommunication? Freemasonry. More problems. 1983, November 26, not too long after that, the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued the Declaration on Masonic Organizations. They, they sent out a letter on this basically saying that 1374 had the same essential import of the old canon and in fact the Masonic sect is no longer explicitly named but the negative judgment remains. So in other words, this was just to reinforce the old canon and say it is still in place. 
the final, uh, one of the final documents is really amazing, and that's the excommunication document of the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska, by Bishop Buskowitz in 1996. And basically what he did in this letter is to declare that all Catholics in and of the Diocese of Lincoln are forbidden to be members of the organizations listed below. And um, <clears throat> then he lists the following organizations, Planned Parenthood, Society of St. Pius X, Hemlock Society, Call to Action, Call to Action Nebraska, St. Michael the Archangel Chapel, Freemasons, Job's Daughters, Demolay, Eastern Star, Rainbow Girls, Catholics for a Free Choice. Any Catholics in and of the Diocese of Lincoln who attain or retain membership in any of the above listed organizations or groups after April 15th of 1996 are by very fact ipso facto under interdict and absolutely forbidden to receive communion. And uh, also that uh, uh, disobedient persistence in such membership from one month following the interdict on the part of such Catholics will uh, cause them to be excommunicated. Absolute uh, absolution from these censures is reserved to the bishop. So he took a very strong position on this. There was a, a document, uh, actually it was a, an article written by, some of you may remember Father Robert Bradley. He was at Christendom, I think, for a while. No, actually he was at uh, Notre Dame uh, Graduate School for a period of time. And Father Bradley, uh, in an article that's found on the EWTN website, talked about the fact that um, the church's case against Freemasonry finds its culminating statement in 1884 in Leo XIII's encyclical Humanum Genus. And so he goes back to this point where he really is emphasizing the fact that Pope Leo is really condemning them on the basis of naturalism. Theistic naturalism, where basically we are removing the gospel and particularly the salvific nature of Jesus Christ from all discussion. Uh, and he says this, um, that the content in function of which, the conspiracy, of which conspiracy is but method, the end determining and justifying the means. In other words, he's concerned about the content of what they're promulgating because their understanding is so different than what we as Catholics understand as faith. To conclude, he says, we Catholics should now see the Masons more clearly for what they essentially are. They are the heirs, unwittingly or otherwise irrelevant, of a religion which purports to be the one religion of the one God and therefore the enemy intrinsically and implacably so of Catholicism. So basically, that's where we ended up. Do you want me to keep going? Okay. I'm going to just run like a train because we are on a time deadline. The history of Freemasonry, um, as, you, as you heard earlier, that they can trace themselves or want to trace themselves back mythologically to the whole idea of the stonemasons uh, that were organized into lodges. And that is not talking about um, speculative masons, but true masons, real masons that work with masonry. And these came uh, from a couple of manuscripts in terms of setting up the background and history of Freemasonry. One is called the Hallowell Manuscript, or the Regis Poem, that dates from about 1390 to 1425, circa 1400. It's 64 pages written in Middle English, and it talks about the craft of masonry, which began with Euclid in Egypt and then came to England during the reign of King Athelstan. 
There was another one called the Cook Manuscript from 1425 that basically took this a step further, tracing masonry to Jabal, son of Lamech, from Genesis chapter 4. And then the knowledge came to Euclid and from the children of Israel and subsequently was transferred to England. So there were, uh, you know, subsequent uh, manuscript constitutions that came out, basically, again, tracing masonry back to biblical times and fixing its establishment in England during the reign of Athelstan, which is 927 to 939. But officially, Freemasonry was constituted in England in 1717 when the first premier lodge of England was established to gather all other of the lodges. Now, before that time, one of the things that happened is that the lodges of operative masons, the real masons, began to take in other members that they called speculative masons. And these were just those that wanted to live the life but not do the work. <laughs> you know? So, uh, anyway, I guess they weren't worth their mortar. But um, that was a bad pun. <laughs> Speculative lodges were then established where the entire lodge was, where they were speculative masons. And this became basically the, the seeds of Freemasonry, which then was formally established in 17, uh, 1717. Then there was the establishment of continental masonry, Freemasonry. Now, this came from a guy by the name of Andrew Michael Ramsey, who was a Scotsman who lived in France. There he was known as Chevalier Ramsey. And what he began to do is to incorporate the Crusaders into Freemasons lore. So you had Crusader Masons that he talked about that recovered secrets from the Holy Land and brought them back and made that a part of Freemasonry lore. And so what ended up happening is that the English church refused Ramsey's additions. And so they established instead a schismatic group called Continental Freemasonry. And this separatist organization uh, was the main focus of Pope Clement's in Eminenti encyclical in 1738. He was really focusing mostly on Continental Freemasonry because that was what was affecting them in Europe. And there was a lot more uh, uh, how would you put it? They're just more things that were a little... More things way wrong. Way wrong uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, but especially in terms of letting things kind of esoteric ideas. Yeah, this is where... Uh, this is where um, Masonry kind of got off the rails. That's the best way to put it. Because when the Continental side took over... They split the group and formed what was called the Ancients and the Moderns. The Moderns were the esoterics, the one who believed that Isis was involved and Osiris, um, all basically far out esoteric stuff. Unfortunately, to this day, that is still within the teachings of the Lodge. Now, when I say within the teachings, there isn't one teaching within the Masonic Lodge. These are ideas that people bring into as part of their, quote, research. I sat in a meeting one time, and a very strong Jewish rabbi, who was also a Mason, stood up and started talking about time. 
and how time was controlled basically by the Masons. Yeah. And this was in a Masonic meeting. And I just shook my head. It's because I knew dang well that was not true. Okay? So in 1737, with the establishment of continental Freemasonry, we went off the it went off the rails big time. Started going into the esoteric Grand Lodge of England at the time, which was the considered the mod, the, the moderns, brought it back. Now to this day, in France, in Italy, and in some other areas of Europe, they still have a lot of the old teachings going on right now. Okay. In the United States, it is required that a Bible or a book of sacred law be placed on a Masonic altar. You know, whether that be a Quran, a Torah, or um, a Holy Script or our Bible. In France and other places, they've taken it off because they've brought it into a sense of meism. They haven't. They forgot about God. They really have. And because they forgot about God, they then have forgotten about Jesus Christ and the church. Am I saying a Freemason and the church are compatible? No. <laughs> Far from it. But where Masonry could be accepted within the Catholic Church is only within the sense of the hospitals and stuff like that. Not within the teachings, not within the secrets of what little there are, not within any of the degree work or anything else like that. But beyond that, we, it's got a lot of problems. And that's why it's also in decline to this day because they're not sticking to a way forward for their members. And basically a lot of the, the, the occult practices were, were integrated into the continental Freemasonry. Correct. That's where that all has, has kind of been incorporated as well. What about America? What happened in North America? Boston Lodge was established in 1733 prior to the Revolutionary War as the first constituted lodge. Masonic activity, however, took place as early as 1715 in Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin reissued uh, the Anderson Constitution of 1723, which was from England, correct? Um, as the provincial grand master of Pennsylvania. So uh, Benjamin Franklin was very uh, big in Freemasonry. Uh, and um, so they began to uh, incorporate uh, other lodges around the area. 1733 to 1737, again, still prior to the Revolutionary War, the Grand Lodges in England um, expanded into having Grand Lodges in Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina. So as you can see, uh, early in the, 18th, or in the 18th century, we had things beginning to happen. So that basically is, is how things have developed. And again, to this day, it's continued to uh, express itself in every state in the Union, as well as in the District of Columbia, uh, in some very strong ways. Well, what are the beliefs of Freemasonry? And this is really where we get into how uh, the compatibility issue is really, really at stake. 
Mankind was created by one God. Well, that's all well and good, but you need to have an understanding of what they mean by that. Uh, one of the things, this is from the Grand Lodge of Indiana. They say, monotheism is the sole dogma of Freemasonry. Belief in one God is required to every initiate. But his, concept, but his conception of the supreme being is left to his own interpretation. Freemasonry is not concerned with theological distinctions. So in other words, you need to believe in a, in a, in a supreme being but that can be of your own understanding, your own invention. This is their universality. This is where things can really get problematic. Also, you'll notice in, their, uh, in the logo that's in the front, uh, the letter, big letter G. What does that stand for? Well, geometry. Thank you. And now, it's secondarily for God, but primarily for geometry. Um, in the, uh, the ritual uh, for the fellow craft degree from the state of Nevada ritual, it says, My brother, we are now in a place representing the middle chamber of King Solomon's temple. Behold the letter G suspended in the east. It is the initial of geometry, the first and noblest of the sciences, and the basis on which the superstructure of Freemasonry is erected. By geometry, may we can curiously trace nature through her various windings to her most concealed recesses. By it, we discover the power, wisdom, and goodness of the grand architect of the universe, which is another name for God that you will hear in Freemasonry. The letter G to which your attention was directed on your passage hither has a still greater and more significant meaning, the initial and sacred name of God before whom all Masons, from the young entered apprentice who stands in the northeast corner to the worshipful master who resides in the east, should most humbly, reverently, and devoutly bow. Now, they are bowing to God, but it is whatever God they happen to make up. Um, and this is from uh, The Craft and Its Symbols by Alan Roberts. Uh, you have learned that Freemasonry calls God the great architect of the universe. This is the special name. In the Masonic Lodge, you will find that the name of deity that is used. And so you will hear that a lot. That's right, yes. correct on all of the different groups? Yes. Okay, mankind was created by one God. And this one God is the author of all life. Okay. If we understand that to be the revealed God of Holy Scripture that we as Christians embrace from our Judeo-Christian heritage, that statement holds water. But remember that whatever religion you happen to hold, that is the one that is the author of all life. And God's existence is revealed through faith and holy scriptures. But holy scriptures, the volume of sacred laws, they call it, is whatever holy book you particularly want to embrace. But that book of holy scriptures is the ultimate authority or the great light of Freemasonry. They also say that the soul of man is immortal and that man's commitment to divine providence determines his destiny. So um, your commitment to whatever God you have erected will determine your destiny. That's kind of dangerous, isn't it? I am the captain of my own fate. In fact, in the first degree... 
this is what is said about the, the uh, apron. Uh, this lambskin is therefore to remind you of that purity of life and rectitude of conduct which is so essentially necessary to your gaining admission to the celestial lodge above. How different it is from Freemasonry when we open to Romans chapter 10 and we read this. The scripture says, No one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So again, here we are juxtaposed. Freemasonry is saying whatever is your commitment to your divine providence is going to give you the destiny of being in that celestial lodge. The other thing is that your reverence is shown by your actions toward fellow man. Well, in some ways, that, uh, that again fits well with Scripture in terms of that which you have done to the least of these, my, your brethren, you've done it unto me. But again, putting it in the context of who it is that you're doing it for makes this a very, very different place. So, um, one of the things that that we see here is that the beliefs of Freemasonry leave them in a very slippery place in terms of what they uh, are needing to try to present to those from positions of Christian faith to have them come in. Now, if you're within uh, some of the Protestant traditions, you can make it all work. But particularly in the Roman Catholic world, through our magisterium, the magisterium, the teaching office of the church, through the leadership that we have in our popes and in our bishops, these things are incompatible. Bishop Buskowitz was very clear on that. Archbishop Kratzer was very clear on that. Our Holy Fathers have all been clear on that. How dangerous it is when we fall into the slippery slope of naturalism. So this is really uh, where we end up, is, is seeing ourselves completely in a different place from a worldview held by the Freemasons. So I'm going to give Mark some time now and let him just kind of do some sharing. I didn't make any notes here because I didn't know, first of all, who my audience was really going to be. I've never had the pleasure of attending one of these events before. Um, first of all, I want to ask, how many here know of a family member who is or was a Mason? Okay. The reason I asked that question is not to say anything negative. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. I'm not going to denigrate anybody's family. And the reason I say this is I am a fifth generation Mason, or was, okay? My great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father. My first Masonic event, I was two weeks old, okay? The Shriners is where I really did grow up. Okay, I went to all their national conventions. I went to the Shrine Circus. I worked the Shrine Circus seven times each year as an usher, helping my dad. So when I turned 21, the natural thing was to ask for a petition, which I did. My dad actually said no. Not for any religious reasons or anything like that. The reason he said no is because you're on active duty in the military, you're about to transfer, let's wait. I said, okay. 
So a few months later, I transferred up here to the D.C. area, and I asked again for a petition. And he arranged it, and I joined the Masons here at the age of 21. So all I ever knew my whole life was joining the Masonic Lodge. When we were kids, at Christmas time, we went to the Masonic Lodge to see Santa Claus and receive presents. At Easter, we went to the Shrine Temple to do an Easter egg hunt. A couple times a year, we came out here and was standing on the steps of the George Washington Masonic National Memorial in Alexandria on Easter sunrise for the Easter sunrise service, surrounded by about 2,000 fully dressed Knights Templar. Okay? So to grow up in something like that, it was, it's very hard for me to say that my father, my grandfather, my great-uncle, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, other men in my family were evil or that they believed something incorrectly. So I'm not going to say that, obviously, about anybody in this room or their families. Okay? For me, masonry was my salvation at the time. At the age of 21, I had just come off two med deployments, two Mediterranean deployments, heavily drinking, heavily smoking, basically kind of lost, and ended up at the lodge. <laughs> okay? Where drinking's not allowed, smoking's not allowed, cursing's not allowed. Most of the men there were all military officers and mainly senior military officers. And I was a little old second class E5 in the Navy. So I had to be on my best behavior. It felt right. Because these were the same men who I grew up with looking up as uncles, as grandparents, as surrogates. When my dad was in an event, I hung out with the wives. So all the nice old ladies that were there became my aunts and my grandmother and stuff like that. So I saw the same thing later on when I first joined. And they took me in that way. They basically took this young kid who was lost, living on his own at Fort Myer, Virginia, and made him who they were. In December of this year, it would be 25 years since I joined. And in the Masonic world, 25 years is a lot of years and a very big ceremony, which I've already received my card to go to, and I've said no. <laughs> um, they advanced me so quickly because they wanted to be with, have me with them that they actually made me a presiding officer of 17 of their organizations in less than 25 years. I advanced throughout the state, throughout the nation, in different facets. At break, or after we're done, we, I will um, stand over by the regalia I brought to explain whatever you need, need to see. So what stopped me? What brought me as uh, Scott Hahn says, home to Rome. Okay? 
And it was one person, and it was my wife. I met a very lovely woman. We were both in our mid-30s. Um, we met online, but there is a story behind all that. <laughs> Turns out her sister's father-in-law and I were friends for 20 years because he was the master of a lodge down the street. <laughs> um, we started dating, and we couldn't find a date to act, a day that we can actually see each other a lot because I literally was out seven nights a week at a Masonic Lodge or a Masonic event or leading a group or whatever. And she finally goes, do you go to church? And I said, yeah. I'll meet you there Sunday morning. And she came to my Episcopal church. This is nice Roman Catholic, half Mexican, half Irish, Irish Scotch lady coming to an Episcopal church to meet a Mason <laughs> who she met online. Okay, so you get the picture. Yeah, she was a missionary. You get the point. Oh, by the way, and there was a female priest there. <laughs> Just to throw everything in there. Okay. And half the congregation were Masons. We started dating. And she actually sent me on a little mission before we got married down to Our Lady of Guadalupe. To Tepeyac Hill in Mexico City. She said, I need candles for the wedding, and she wanted me to get votive candles. Okay, as a, an Episcopalian in a very low church, I had no clue what she was asking for. She wanted the little things. I got her ones that were this big. They had St. Juan Diego on there, and Our Lady of Guadalupe, the Pope, you name it. But I attended Mass inside the Basilica, and a friend of mine was actually celebrating the Mass, and in the center there, there's an area for VIPs, if you will, to sit. And I was actually down there with a group. And I was staring at this thing, not knowing what it is. It's called the Tima, the image of Our Lady, staring at me the entire time. Now, I'm sitting on the other side of the altar, and she's up against the wall. And I'm seeing the most piercing blue eyes that I've ever seen. Staring into my heart. I'm an Episcopalian. So I didn't know very much. And I said, if my wife becomes pregnant, I'll become Catholic. Yeah, you get what you wish for. <laughs> A few months later, she became Catholic. Or she became pregnant after we got married, and I became Catholic. I did not, though, give up my Masonic fraternity membership then. Did not give up my activities. Because at that time, I did not know what was really happening. Now, by this time, as Father Sly knows, and as a few of you know, I had attended actually a seminary to study to be an Episcopal priest. So I started studying theology and everything else. And I did start seeing issues with the theism and with the, all the bad teachings, heresies left and right that were being proclaimed within the church. I'm sorry, between being the, uh, declared within the lodge. 
and within the other organizations. And I'm saying this is not right. But I'm now in a position of leadership, so I can change this. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't. <laughs> and my wife kept saying, you know, you're really not supposed to be a member. And I'm like, why? And she goes, well, the Pope says no. I was like, okay. Her mom says the same thing. If you ever meet... By the way, they go to this great church here, St. Michael's. Um, my wife went to this school, so I've got to be very nice here. They kept hounding me about it, hounding me and hounding me and hounding me. And I wasn't listening. I was being stupid. Until about three years into our marriage, and she said you really need to stop this. At the same time, I also received a letter from the Holy See announcing that I had been nominated for knighthood. Yeah, go figure. Here I am, a heretic, Masonic, you name it. I go to the, the meeting for my uh, knighthood up in New York, and the first thing out of their mouth was, yeah, if you're a Mason, you can't be knighted. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Just wasted like $3,000 coming up here. The talking to I had by the archbishop really started showing me the light. And in about two hours... He had me out of the Masonic fraternity because he said one thing to me. He said, do you want to live or do you want to go to hell? <laughs> Archbishop Dolan said that to me. The most blunt, beautiful man I have met in a long time. <laughs> and I said, of course, I want to live. He said, fine, then you're going to stop. And I did. I have not been to a Masonic meeting since. I had just buried my dad beforehand, and I actually did his Masonic funeral. And then I had to give it all up. And it's still the hardest thing to do, because I still have a lot of friends there. I have a lot of friends who are Catholic, who are also Masons. I have a lot of friends there who are good Christian men but who are active within the Masonic fraternity. I have friends there who are clergymen who are Episcopal priests who are also within the fraternity. And so it was hard to separate myself from them in that way. Now I still talk to some of them. They, they know my, my views, my feelings, everything else. But to separate yourself from that after so many years, having so many memories, so many family, was extremely difficult. But the only reason I could do it was because of seeing those piercing blue eyes at, Guad at Guadalupe. Because it's from those eyes that I had my first real inkling and first love of the church. I didn't know what it meant to really love a church. 
until then. And as Father Sly knows, ever since then I've thrown myself into this. So, I am a humble, sinful man who still struggles with this, but who is willing to share with you my love of the church, my love of Jesus Christ, and my separation from a group that does have theological and spiritual flaws. Thank you. I hope tonight, and we're going to break in just one second uh, and then come back for some questions, um, but I hope that you can catch the heartbeat of what we're trying to do tonight. Um, we want to inform you as to what is really going on within the Masonic world and how it is not in uh, harmony with what we as Catholics embrace and believe. At the same time, we don't want to do anything other than have a love in our hearts for those who are there that we can draw into the fullness of the faith. Um, and I'll tell you what, he fell in love with the church because through Mary's eyes, the church fell in love with you. you know, and I think that's the thing, is that, that, that that's where we need to be in terms of our, our hearts toward those that are a part of it. Again, please hear what we're saying. Again, the compatibility is not there. But um, please uh, pray for those that are within Masonic uh, fraternities. So with that, Deacon... Good job. Good job. We've had two similar questions. It says it was not made clear whether the Masons are a part of the conspiracy theories or secret societies. No, they are not as a universal group. Individuals could be, but there is no, uh, there is no linkage between Freemasonry as an international organization and the other societies because there is no international association. That is correct. There is and no. That, that's the biggest mis. I'm sorry. Thank you. That, that's one of the biggest misnomers, okay? Because some people say about the Scottish Rite being like the big thing, the 33rd degree, okay? In Masonry, and this is actually kind of, this is true. There is no higher degree than the third degree. Everything else is appendant bodies. In other words, those groups that you have to belong to the lodge to be able to join. Now, some are invitational only, some are. Um, you just go ahead and petition. Over on the counters where I laid out a lot of my stuff, which I kept. Uh, Why? Well, I have no idea, but I kept them. Um, for tonight. For tonight, yeah. <laughs> including, if you see the green um, neck pieces and stuff, there was called the Allied Masonic Degrees. There are 256 known degrees within Freemasonry, of which basically only about 40 are really practiced, and the rest of them are, are incorporated in a group called the Allied Masonic Degrees. And basically it's just a storage area for all this stuff that may or may not be used eventually, uh, and which I was the presiding officer of, and that's what some of that uh, memorabilia means. So when it comes to the conspiracy, the truth is there is no one person who's in charge. There is no one group that is in charge. Each state, each country rules themselves individually and each group's <coughs> head rules themselves individually. There are members though that have been 
part of conspiracies. Okay, I will not disagree with that. Okay, um, over in Great Britain, the Metropolitan Police Force, uh, as we all know, Scotland Yard, used to be where the top ranks, unless you were a Mason, you were never going to get into it. Okay, was that a conspiracy? I'm not sure. But it was just something that was the truth. There have been, down in Mexico, Simon Bolivar, okay, led the Mexican Revolution, a Mason. But was he a, the conspiracy leader for Masons? No. So there are Masons who are members of conspiracies, but Masonry itself is not the, the head of a conspiracy. Okay, good, thank you. Um, I'm gonna go off the rail, sorry. Uh, so, <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I got a, a statement and then I got a question. So, I don't know if, it, if, if fathers have, uh, have ever heard of Mary moving a priest, Father Gobi, but Fa John Paul II was a member of the Mary moving a priest, and um, there was a, it's a priest uh, in Italy who was getting interior locutions of the Virgin Mary, and I, I want to know if you can comment on. He talked a lot, or she told him a lot about. Ecclesiastical masonry and the, how it's infiltrating the church. And I'm wondering if you have any comment or know about the very movement of priests. Just that I know that, that it, it does exist. I don't know. Again, um, I've heard stories. I don't want to propagate that because I don't have enough corroborating evidence. Uh, but I have heard stories about Freemasonry in the Vatican. Uh, there are you can find all of that kind of stuff. And that there have been revelations of these types of things. Are there Catholics who are Masons? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And uh, is that compatible? Not according to the church, and I don't believe it's compatible. So I, I really don't want to go into detail without having corroborating evidence. Yes? What views historically have the Masons had, and what views do the Masons currently have of the Catholic Church? Oh, please. <laughs> okay. Let's go back many, many years to Pope Clement V. Okay, there's a degree in Freemasonry in the Scottish Rite called the 30th degree, Knight of Kadosh. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we were saving this, okay? We, we had this planned. Okay, in the, in the degree of Knight of Kadosh, the presiding officer of the degree actually takes a bishop's mitre and a, and a crown and stomps on it. Okay, or did up until five years ago when the degree was actually rewritten. Okay. And the rationale behind all that was Pope Clement and Philip IV of France in the dissolution of the Knights Templars. Now, there is a lore, one actually I do kind of subscribe to, that what we know today is speculative Freemasonry actually comes out of the disillusion of the Knights Templars going to Scotland and fighting for Robert the Bruce, who was an excommunicated Catholic, for him against the Catholic King of England. So that's, I mean, there is, I wouldn't say hard evidence, but enough corroborating evidence on that one that it is believable that they actually fought for him at the Battle of Bannockburn. Okay, so at the time that speculative Freemasonry came out of the darkness, as they call it, in 1717, Catholics were not allowed to join. Why? Because it was happening, first of all, over in Great Britain. What's the national church over there? Is the Church of England. Okay, 
Church of England back then did not allow Catholics to be involved in anything. And I don't think the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was a Mason, would have allowed a Catholic to be a Mason. Okay? So there was a very much anti-Catholic thinking. Big anti-Catholic thinking after the French Revolution in France. Okay? Big anti-Catholic feeling within Masonry down in Mexico. Okay, when they wrote their constitution, they actually said Catholic priests can't wear their clericals out in public. Okay, half the members of their constitutional writing team were Masons. Okay, today though, I wouldn't say it's it, 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 it's softened in that Catholics aren't excluded from joining the lodge by the Masons. Obviously, by the church they are. Okay. But by the Masons, they're not. There's a lot of people I know of who are Catholics, who are the head, national and state heads of some of these bodies, who are Catholics, members of the Knights of Columbus, okay, active in their parishes, receiving the Blessed Sacrament. Okay? I have, thank God, not ever encountered them in the line when I was distributing. And I know you're very happy to hear that. <laughs> she used to lead me in that. Um, so to the, today, there is no negative aspect of masonry to Roman Catholicism. Individually, there may be by individual people, but not as a group. There used to be, but not anymore. Hi, Father. So. My question is, is during this time, the church specifically addressed, as we've heard through the popes, Freemasonry. And at the time, there was a lot of bigger fish to fry. I mean, there was heresies and there was Protestant Reformation going on. Why did they specifically address Freemasonry? What was the biggest threat other than the SECT sect that you had, you had spoken about? Well, I, I think we to put it in context that it was one of many things that were addressed. I think the big reason why the the pieces were written that were written is because uh, of a drift among the people in their understanding of how the church views Freemasonry. Does that make sense? In other words, canon law specifically covered it. They weren't spending a lot of time fretting over it, but then when it would come back to them saying, well, wait a minute, does this mean we can go ahead and join this? Uh, because the thing that that would be so de uh, you know devastating would be for syncretism to come in you know in in great form into the church, and so they wanted to be sure that that the church understood this is how we feel about Freemasonry, particularly when it comes to their understanding of God, God being universal deity of some sort. Yes. Thank you very much, Father. Wonderful presentation this okay. evening. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.